All right, here we go. Welcome back to the Bibliotheques podcast, folks. Cody and I are continuing on our journey with True Grit by Charles Portis today. Plan for today is we are reading chapter five. As we alluded to last week, the chapters in this book make absolutely no sense in terms of like how long they are, how much time is in between them. And so this is a longer chapter. There's a lot that goes down in this chapter. So it's worth spending a lot of time on. So we're just doing chapter five. And then in the next couple of weeks, we're going to keep on doing the same thing where we're just covering one chapter at a time. Both of those chapters also meteor as we get into the last uh, bit of this book and start really ramping up with the story and chasing down our villain, Tom Cheney. Cody, how did this section of the book reach you? I love this section of the book. It just has... So like Paul alluded to, there is... It's a very strange way to break it up because you keep kind of thinking in your head like, oh, I wonder when the chapter is going to close out. And then it just doesn't. It just kind of rolls. But we're not doing any large jumps in time and we're not doing anything that doesn't make sense from like a and then I went here and then I had to go here and then from there I was over here. So I had to move over here. It's very succinct and everything is very logical. You're almost there's almost like a minute to minute accounting of Maddie's life. And that's why it all takes place in one chapter. Totally. Yep. I just wanted to say this off the bat, and this is not anything different from what we were looking at last week, but I just love reading this book. It's so incredibly easy. Like it's chewable, digestible. It reads super smooth you can just cruise through it if you aren't like stopping every 30 seconds and taking notes like I am. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. it's like, it is an awesome book to read because Charles Portis just makes it so accessible. Like the way that he just describes this world and moves you along with Maddie in, like you said, almost a minute to minute account of like each one of her days It doesn't feel very burdensome. It's super smooth. I just like, I'm just in love with this so far. So I just wanted to say that that's like my overall takeaway of this book so far. And this is coming from just reading Fear and Loathing, where it felt like a slog to get through a lot of the time. This just feels like a hot knife through butter. Like it's so easy. Right. And what's great is that even though it it's it's so digestible. It's not shallow at all. Like, no, there's so much right. there. And we'll talk about it later in our kind of like literary breakdown, a couple pieces of that. But it is, like Paul said, you can just absolutely set your brain on cruise control and just glide through this story. Yeah, it's it's awesome. But let's let's get started with chapter five. So last week we just recapped how our main character, Maddie this 14-year-old girl is trying to recruit essentially this U.S. Marshal named Rooster Cogburn to help her hunt down the man who murdered her father. And we are at kind of a staging point at the beginning of this chapter where certain things need to be prepared before we can set off into Native American land in Oklahoma to go catch this guy. We've met kind of a a roadblock in a character named Labeef, who is also after this guy, and Maddie doesn't want to share the bounty with him because she needs to get him back to Arkansas. Labeef wants to take him to Texas, so we have that going on. And we start with Maddie having a little bit of a, like getting over what was more or less just a cold last week, waking up feeling better and waiting for this letter to come in from her attorney, which will basically give her the rights to get her money back from this man named Stonehill who sold her father ponies that she no longer needs. So she needs to get this money to get her money back for these ponies. So when we start, 
she goes to the mail room and in typical Maddie fashion, they're like still sorting the mail when she gets there. And she just cuts through all of that noise and is like, hey, get me my letter now. I'm not going to wait for you to be done with this shit. So the guy like gets her her letter and it's from her attorney, attorney Daggett, and it includes a few things. So first of all, this letter of release that she can give Stonehill to get the money back. But also Daggett is like, damn girl, like you seriously know what you're doing here. And I'm very impressed but you need to fucking consult with me before you keep making these moves. Cause this is like going to get you in trouble And like, I'm the adult here and I can let you know how to like move up with these business dealings. <laughs> on top of that, we all just get some updates. I'm like, all right, your mom's a total wreck and she's not signing anything without your supervision here. So your adult mother needs her 14 year old daughter at home in order to like settle the estate of your murdered father. And we get a bunch of other like miscellaneous updates about her father's funeral and this terrible priest who presided over the whole thing. In addition to like what's going on with her siblings. It's so funny because, you know, Daggett is really, even though he writes a very succinct letter, he's a little bit of a loss of words for how the situation should be going. Cause that, He's, he's trying to balance two things of like, you are so crucial to the success of your family that your mother has stalled probate because she won't even look at receipts Yeah, if you're not here. Um, but at the same time, you're a little girl walking around in the dangerous town of Fort Smith, Arkansas, and you need to come home now. What are you doing? Well, like, like It's awesome. You, you made a great deal. You absolutely shook down colonel stonehill by his ankles and had all the pennies fall out i commend you for that but you need to go home like let me like and my big boy lawyer pants actually do this and you don't get killed and she reads it and she's like the first thing she says is like wow i can't believe they got that absolute moron priest to preside over my dad's funeral what a terrible idea anyway like it just goes out and finishes the rest of her business in town completely ignores the the letter yeah and in this letter it also says if i'm if i'm correct in this that attorney daggett and i think maybe someone else is actually coming up to uh fort smith to basically retrieve maddie And Maddie's like, that can't happen because I've got like a mission to go on. Yeah. She just completely disregards all of that. Like doesn't even process it to the reader. She's like, I got this guy to do it. Dumb. Anyway. Yeah. So after, (laughs) after she's given her thoughts on this preacher, (laughs) she goes to Stonehill with her letter and I just... Again, like there's just moments in this book where I'm just reminded constantly about the time period that we're living in because Stonehill is a little sick and he basically describes it as being under the weather, suffering from his annual bout with malaria. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's casual. Sure. Okay, so my guy... So they don't call him Colonel Stonehill for no reason. I'm pretty sure this guy probably served in the East Indies or some other nonsense tropical theater. And he just contracted and now has chronic malaria. Mm -hmm. But he's living in like the American South, which, you know, it doesn't have the worst winters in the world. Like this guy should try hanging out in, you know, the state of Minnesota, which has only been a state for like 20 years at this point. See how cold that is. But he just has to deal with that. Right. Yeah, it, and you know he wants to pay Maddie with a check, but she insists on cash, which basically means that okay, we're gonna have to wait for the bank to open. And this is just another great example of Maddie just like having a really solid head on her shoulders. It's like, no man, I'm not taking your fucking check. I need first of all, I need cash now, and secondly, I'm not going to risk the possibility that this check isn't gonna clear. Yeah, it's really smart, and you know. Stonehill having uh, gotten what fur from Maddie earlier this week is in really no position to argue. He's like, well, you're just going to have to wait for the bank to open. Then I'm not, I'm not made of cash, but we can take care of it then. And she's like, okay, I can deal with that. Mm -hmm. 
so she grabs breakfast back at the monarch boarding house and Labeef is there and you know like we said in the last episode Labeef had just come off the road and he was looking scraggly not anymore he's clean shaven he's looking great and he asks her questions about what she's doing in town you know fishing for clues and she pretty much tries to ignore him however mrs floyd the proprietor cannot keep her mouth shut and just really likes to talk about maddie's business in front of labeef which she does not appreciate yeah it's like we're dealing with like another kind of like butterbur character at the bar here yeah where it's just like semi-lovable kind of oaf that all of our characters just want to just like Get me my breakfast, get me my room, and also don't forget about Gandalf and don't tell me all of my, like, tell me all the shit, to tell the whole bar all the shit that I have going on. Well, two out of three ain't bad, Paul. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> so she then returns to the stockyard and, you know, the colonel, he's feeling worse. He's being a good sport about getting totally railroaded by a child and, like, gives her the money and everything. She then goes to the Chinese grocery store. Uh, Lee's place to find Rooster. Uh, and she finds that he's still in bed at 10 a.m., which she's like pretty judgmental about. She offers him the money for the job and he's like, all right, I'll do it. I accept. And she's like, all right, great. When are we going? And he's like, we? When am I going, little girl? And she, you know, she's like, no, your job, what you're getting paid for is to ferry me into Indian country where then we hunt my father's killer. He emphasizes the danger of the work and that it's not cut out for little girls, undoubtedly true. It's not right for 14-year-old boys or girls. He's just like, I'm not taking a child with me into Indian country. Like, this is intense stuff. As usual, she's super headstrong and, like, <laughs> uses, like, her sobriety to kind of make him mad and, like, questions his grit. Like, oh, if you were a real man, you'd t- take me, a child, with you on this manhunt. Makes no sense, but it gets him really angry. He lunges at her, but then stops when she like quickly evades him and grabs his expense reports and puts them over the flame. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, okay, stop. I will not hit you for being a terrible little girl, but you can't burn those at all because we can't leave until I <laughs> file my expense reports. Cause I haven't done them in months. Right. Right. And okay. I, I love this so much because it just, it makes me think about, <laughs> It just emphasizes the difference between Maddie and Rooster in this moment because Maddie goes on to like do his expense reports for him. So obviously that's important because it shows you that Maddie is in a hurry to get the fuck out of town. She's like, okay, I'm not going to wait for you to do these expense reports. I'm going to do them for you. But there's like a detailed explanation about how disorganized and just messy all of these reports are and how Rooster's basically like, hey, I need to get paid for this thing that I did in August. However, they're not going to pay me for anything that happened before October 1st. So let's just kind of like, you know, fudge the dates. Exactly. And cook the books. (laughs) And so Maddie does this like exquisite, detailed reporting of all of his expenses over the past like what six months (laughs) however cooks it so that it all is acceptable within the last like two or three months after october 1st she's got entries from like yeah august and september exchanges like this random dude 17 cents and she's like what is this he's like i think i gave a guy like a can of beans or like a couple bullets and she's like well which is it (laughs) Like I need to put this down. Yeah, but so what this is what this is super interesting to like to me, um, or or why this interests me is one of the big issues of this story is Maddie being a fourteen year old child embarking on this journey with this adult grizzled veteran rooster, but scenes like this intentionally play with the idea it's like it's asking you okay who is actually the adult in this scenario it's making it's laying out very clearly like okay despite maddie's age and maybe shortcomings physically and just her own lack of experience 
she's clearly more of an adult in many situations than this rooster guy. Yeah, I mean, she can read and write and do really good quick math. Um, you know, Rooster admits he's like, they take me a lot like my expense reports, they take me a long time because I'm not exactly a book guy. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm more of a ride my horse and shoot bad guys in the face kind of guy. I'm not really one for the whole reading and writing nonsense. And she's like, Well, I need you for the other so I can do this. And so she she cooks the books for him, looks great. They strike up a deal, 25 bucks now so he can get provisions, 25 when they leave, it's kind of like a security deposit, $50 when they have Cheney dead or alive. Great, awesome. They're set out to leave tomorrow at first light. Maddie returns to the boarding house that afternoon. There's no Labeef. She goes then to the Colonel's stockyard to buy a pony. And uh, the malaria on, on the poor dear Colonel has only gotten worse. Uh, it's like, he's, he's like, why are you here? And she's like, I want to do more business. And he's like, oh, Christ. Okay, what? <laughs> she's like, I, I want to buy one of those ponies. Earlier today, you like bought back these ponies. That was a couple of days ago. You said you're going to get them to like the glue factory, basically. She's like, I want to pay market rate for the pony. And he's like, why are you torturing me? <laughs> <laughs> like this little girl. Yeah. And the best part is she's like, all right. So I just paid, or you paid me for all of these ponies back. Conveniently earlier, you told me what this glue factory is willing to pay per head for each one of these. So I'll pay you the $10 that they're asking for, for one of them. The guy's like, okay, please, please, God, that, that is the batch rate for all of them. That is not the going rate for one pony. Maddie's just like, nah, I don't know, man. He's like, look, 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 Okay. I paid 25 bucks a head to you for these. The batch rate is 10 at the glue factory. <laughs> They're just going to mulch these ponies, bro. I will take it or leave it at 18. And she's like, great. I want that one. He's like, God damn it. Okay. You can take that one. Just please, for the love of God, get out of my life. <laughs> Go away. I knew I knew that they told me. They told me that Fort Smith was the Chicago of Arkansas. I know now that it's the Pittsburgh of Arkansas. <laughs> That's a real quote from my guy, Colonel Stonehill. Okay, real quick, before we move on from Stonehill, one of the things I wanted to bring up is from their business dealings previously, when Maddie got her money back, by selling back these ponies to Stonehill. One of the things she mentions is a feeling of like almost kind of emptiness even after winning back her money. And it's not empty emptiness uh, exactly. That's not a quote. I'm paraphrasing. But there is this sense that like despite how successful she was in this transaction, it's clear that there's like there's still like a hollow feeling over it because she knows that her job isn't done here and mm -hmm. no amount of money made back on this is going to get her dad back. She would much rather have all of these fucking ponies and her dad than the 325 she managed to fleece this guy out of. Yeah. So just wanted just wanted to throw that in there. That's a good point, Paul. And it and you know, it just it, it's it's it shows that like she can be, like you said, as good as she is at taking this poor colonel for a ride, but it's a means to an end. She didn't come here to haggle. She came here to haggle as a means to go get the bastard Tom Cheney. So she picks out this one horse named Little Blackie because he's black and he has white forelegs and he's a very good boy. However, she knows that there's a superstition about horses with white legs um, that they're like bad, but she's like, that's nonsense. You people are morons. And I think this horse is cute and he's really nice. So this is my horse now. She goes back to the Chinese grocery store to kind of settle things up with Rooster before they head out. But Labeef is there and he's speaking with Cogburn. And, you know, this is another one of those like Maddie took advantage of the colonel for kind of spilling his guts about the price of the ponies. Uh, this is where Labeef is taking advantage of her for giving him the name of the marshal who's basically shown interest in looking for Cheney, Rooster Cogburn. He's trying to throw in with them. He's talking about how much money the people back in Texas will pay if they return Cheney on his terms. So 
that he's he's really just doing a really simple tactic okay you i don't know how much this little girl promised you but the people back in texas there's a 500 dollars bounty on cheney and the actual family of the state senator that was killed is going to give me 1500 and i am going to spit not all of it but a ton of it with you rooster and you know rooster's really thinking about it and maddie cannot abide this she pleads with rooster to just just ignore him we don't need him we're going to go out He's not really convinced one way or the other. Like he obviously likes money and is entertaining this proposal from LaBeef, but it's also clear that he's not like in on LaBeef himself. They're two pretty, they're both lawmen. They're both bounty hunters, but you know, LaBeef is super flashy. He's a Texas Ranger. He's got, he's a pretty big showboat and rooster for all his skill and violence is kind of a slob. Yeah. And is more like a, you know, salt of the earth. <laughs> kind of get her done guy that doesn't really give a shit how he looks. He's more function than actual presentation. And Labeef for pro- probably being a very talented bounty hunter and, and officer is just a total showboat. And, you know, Rooster is not a big fan of it. Labeef is also very, very cruel to Maddie in presenting what is probably again, the correct opinion that going on a manhunt in Indian territory is not the place for a child, mm-hmm. but you know, in Labeef fashion, he's pretty aggressive about it. And there's kind of no decision to be made one way or the other. And Maddie leaves in a fury and returns home to the boarding house to get her things. Yeah. So, so l- let's, let's pause really quick. Cause there's a couple of things that happen in this conversation with LaBeef at the, at, at Lee's grocery store that I think are interesting. Last week we talked about how the reason that Maddie wanted Cheney brought back to Arkansas in part was because there's this super, hard ass judge where Maddie can feel confident that he will get the death penalty. So that's one reason, but she says something really just really interesting here too, where one of the things that LaBeef is trying to convince her of is like, Hey, if I get him to Texas, okay, I I can tell that money isn't what you want. So let's just put that aside. Like, like let's leave the money out of it. But if I get him to Texas, he is going to receive justice either way. Maddie, one, is not sure of that. And secondly, and more importantly to Maddie, she wants Cheney to know that the justice he is getting is for murdering her father, not just this senator and his dog, because Maddie doesn't care about that. What she cares about is that Cheney, in his dying moments knows he is hanging for the murder of her papa. And so it's just like a very, I don't know, like a very specific sort of justice where it's like, I need him to know the reason he's dying. Right. And, you know, they also try to like placate that as well. Like Rooster's like, Maddie, when we get him, you can tell him the reason you got caught and the reason that we're both here both being the LaBeef and Rooster is because you went out of your way to avenge your father. You can like, you know, put dirt in his mouth, like kick his ass. Like I'll hold him back and you can just like pound on this dude's nuts. I genuinely do not care. (laughs) He can know he he can get Maddie justice day and night on the way back to the courthouse. And is, is that good enough for you? And she's like, no, no, no. He has to hang in Arkansas for the murder of my father. And that's really her strong headedness is really delaying the justice that she so wants. Yeah. So one of the other things that I wanted to bring up just cause I thought that this was so funny was LaBeef is like in a very condescending way throughout this conversation, telling Maddie, Hey, little girl, you can't get everything you want out of this. That's not how this works. And Maddie's response to that is, the fuck I can't. That's what the money is for. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is a transaction between me and this rooster guy. I Yes, I can get what I want because I'm paying to get what I want. (laughs) And what's funny is that Labeef doesn't even recognize that that's exactly what he's arguing for because he is transacting to get Cheney back to Texas. Right. So he's being a hypocrite in that moment too. Labeef like turns to Rooster and he's like, "Are you going to let this little girl talk to us like this? 
And Rooster's like, I kind of like her. I'm not going to lie. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, What are you going to do? I have kind of resigned to the fact that I can't control what she says to me. Right. And, and so I think that that brings up a, a, a good point, which is that at one point, Rooster insists that like Maddie is going to go with them. And Rooster also brings up this thing like, hey, uh, Labeef, you just told me all of the money to be made potentially in Texas. So here's my thinking. Even if I didn't include Maddie in all of this, maybe I just go hunt down this Cheney guy, bring him to Texas and keep all the money for myself and just say, fuck you. Like that's also on the table right now. And so there's this dynamic forming between the three of these people where they all have their own separate agendas on this. And it doesn't, it's not like this unified team atmosphere that we're about to like embark with. No, not at all. All right. So Maddie, after this altercation with LaBeef and Cogburn is furious as she is for not getting her way in a pretty defiant manner. Uh, she returns to the boarding house to collect her things. She is uh, wearing her father's coat, his outdoor coat, and she's also wearing his hat, but it's too big for her. So she has to like roll up newspaper, which I thought was like kind of cute because like she wants to wear her dad's stuff and like em- like embody her dad. That's exactly right. A fourteen-year-old that- girl and literally can't fill his shoes. That's. And yes, Cody, and this is exactly kind of like what we're talking about last week when we're doing our like deeper dive into these passages. These are the kinds of things that like just stick out really clearly in this writing, which is like, hey, it's easy for Charles Portis just to have Maddie with appropriate clothing to go on this journey. She could have just gone out and bought it. No, she's using her father's things to go avenge his death. That's significant. Exactly. And so she returns to the stockyard one final time just to <laughs> to truly nail in the misery of Colonel Stonehill. So he he's closing up shop and she doesn't want to pay to sleep in the boarding house anymore because she's going to be getting up at the crack of dawn to try and beat LaBeef and Rooster to the ferry to cross into Indian country. And she's like, hey, Colonel Stonehill. And he's like, oh, no, God, what, what? And he's like. Is there a complaint about the pony I just sold you? And this is a quote from the book, which I'll be talking about later in this episode. Quote, no, I am very happy with him, said I. Little Blackie is my chum. And then Colonel Stonehill replies, a satisfied customer gladdens the heart. (laughs) We'll talk more about that later, how much I love that line. But it's just so great that he is just like, okay. And she's like, however, I'm here because I have to get up early. I was wondering if I could just stay in this, in your like, stockyard barn one night and then I'll be out in the morning. And he's like, fine. Just if it means that you'll go away, then yes, you can stay there. So she pays the night watchman to prep her horse, get and get her up um, a couple hours after he's up so that she can get ready for the journey. She makes her way to the ferry at a uh, break of day to wait for the two lawmen. And I really liked this little moment where she's, it's like, like in the hours before dawn, and she gets on her horse and it's it's cold, but there's no wind and you're just kind of moving around. And it really, really embodied like the excitement when you have when you're about to go on a trip, you have to get up like super early. If you're ever up at like 3 a.m. for a flight or you're up super early for a road trip, like, you know, what you're feeling where like it's early and you're tired, but you're super excited. You're the only one traveling and it's just like vacant. Like the world has not woken up yet, but like you've got shit to do. Yeah. There's a stillness to like three, 4 AM that actually makes travel extremely convenient. Yeah. Yep. So she gets to the ferry to wait for them. And when they arrive, they're looking ready to rock. There's a description of all the stuff they're wearing. I mean, like they're loaded up with their overcoats. They got their guns. They have, guns on their horses they're wearing different like they're kind of like settled up differently but they're both just armed to the teeth going into indian country ready to do business and maddie even knows like she doesn't necessarily like any of these guys she likes rooster more than labeef but she's even thinking to herself like these guys look kick ass mm-hmm. totally stanced oh they're stanced bro <laughs> don't even <laughs> so anyway labeef pays the ferryman once she's discovered to take her off and return her to the sheriff She's like, this is a runaway child. 
They know who she is. Like they'll figure it out. And she's like, Rooster, are you really going to let him talk to me like that? And Rooster's like, uh, yeah, she's a super annoying runaway. Please take her back to the sheriff. And so, you know, she's like, I am not going to let these assholes do this to me. She gets, she's still on her horse, escapes the ferryman and races across the river in on her horse and beats the ferry there. But as soon as she gallops up to the ferry, right as they cross over, uh, the two just take off on their horses and she's following behind them. But because they're loaded up with weapons and ammo and gear for the trip, and she's like a child on a on a pretty strong pony, she's able to like keep up with them. And at one point, they kind of stop and like tell her to go away. And like the beef throws a rock, and it like doesn't even get close to hitting her. It's really funny. Mm-hmm. But then they kind of keep going again, and then they're hiding in the kind of like tall brush of eastern Oklahoma where they've where they now entered. And they jump her. The beef pulls her from her horse and beats her with a switch. So like, cause he's a fucking dick mm-hmm. and Cogburn is like, okay, you got it. That's enough. But he doesn't listen. He keeps beating her and God Cogburn has to pull his gun on him to get him to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Very intense. And it's, it's this moment that I was, I mean, like I'm, I've been rooting for rooster the whole time. Cause like mm-hmm. I, I've just liked him off the bat. We're like, yeah, he is that kind of gross, kind of grimy dude, but there's something about him. I don't know what it is, something in the writing probably that's just like you you want to root for this guy. And so the moment that he stands up for Maddie, I'm like, okay, fucking finally, dude. Thank he's, you. He, he's, he's real, you know? He's not hidden behind any type of like pretext or agenda. He just says what he thinks. He's extremely honest. Mm-hmm. he's 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 no there's no like hiding anything about him which kind of endears you to him right but anyway you know Labeef throws a stink but maddie cleans herself up and you know at that point they just kind of accept that she's going to be along with them and away they go and that's the end of the chapter yeah so i wanted to before we dive into some of the uh, more nitty-gritty in, in their writing cody i wanted to talk about two things so one is because we've talked a lot about Maddie and like her basically being an adult at 14, um, super matter of fact, determined all of that stuff. One of the things I'm wondering about is as we get further into this journey, how much are we going to start seeing Rooster as a replacement father figure for her? I don't think it's going to take a lot, a lot of time. Right. And so that that's kind of, that's part of why when I'm reading that moment where Rooster pulls a gun on LaBeef and makes him stop beating Maddie, where I'm like, okay, this guy kills people for a living. He spends his life on the road, but for whatever reason, he has like this line or this somewhat protective nature over Maddie and I'm like, okay, alarm bells going off. We've got we've got a father, like a replacement father figure in the making here. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, even now, the beef is also entered into that as like the co-parent who sees things differently as the parent. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And they're stuck together because they have a common goal, but they have to deal with this child mm-hmm. who maybe neither of them wants, but they're becoming more and more accustomed to the fact that they're just, you know, to use a Western term, they're saddled with her. Right, right, right. So it's, it's a great, I mean, it's just another really fun, interesting theme of, you know, just kind of a mismatched family environment going on here. Um, Mm -hmm. That again, like you're saying, Cody, like, these are the kind of things where despite this story being a super easy read, it's the it's that kind of depth to this story, these like additional themes that are just ingrained that make it so fun and awesome to read. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about Cody, and this is a minor thing, I love westerns and one of the great tropes in westerns is like the trusty steed and the fact that like Portis spends a good amount of time in this chapter introducing you to Blackie 
hit me. Like it means something to me that they're chums, which by the way, underused word. (laughs) Why aren't we saying that more? But like the fact that Maddie has this moment where she and Blackie become close and have like these rides together where they start to feel like in tune and trusting of one another is something that because like in a Western, it's something that's almost necessary. Yeah. You really have to have it to be super honest. I mean, I texted you while we were reading this and I was like, I want to ride a horse so bad. Yeah. After this. And it's cute because when she first gets on the horse, the stable hand is like, she's trying to lead him around and he's not going anywhere. And the stable hands, like he doesn't know you're there. You're so light. He hasn't been ridden in a few months. So he's a little rusty himself, but he doesn't know you're there. Like you have to be able to figure out to like tell him you're there. And a couple of things do that. They like hike the stirrups on the saddle up as high as they can go. So she mm-hmm. can put her weight all the way on them. And you know, at, when she loses a little bit of control, she like grabs a fistful of hair in his mane and that kind of like stops him and makes him realize like, I'm, I'm with a rider right now. And after that, she like takes a couple turns on him, you know, takes him up and down a hill and he's like, okay, I can do this. And they have this, yeah, this like little bonding moment. It's really cute. I, yeah. And I just love the, like the, I love the idea of having the horse or steed in the story as its own character. Blackie, the way it, this little pony is written has character has personality and is something that like, it's not just a beast of burden. Like I am invested in the welfare of this pony now as much so as I'm maybe not as much, but like as I'm invested in the other characters, he has a place in this story. We also have an opportunity to avenge probably one of our most egregious takes, which is that Bill the Pony in (laughs) Fellowship of the Ring fucking died. He did not. He did not. Miraculously walked his pony ass from the Mines of Moria entrance back to the goddamn Shire, (laughs) to which he was awaiting our heroes on their return. (laughs) So it's fun to have a pony back in our lives. Oh, it's great. It's so great. But that's what I wanted to get to uh, before we do some uh, nitty gritty deep dives. So like I referenced earlier, the quote, uh, from Colonel Stonehill, a satisfied customer gladdens the heart is funny to me for a couple of reasons. Portis is such a good comedic writer and he's good because he doesn't need a setup punchline style to make you laugh. This made me laugh and it's literally a side comment from a character. But the thing is, if this line appears when we first meet Stonehill, it's not funny to me. Right, right. I need probably like two dozen pages worth of Maddie torturing this man Mm -hmm. to then be able to get his mannerisms, understand his point of view to then have that. What is just like six words to have that just land so hard. And it works on a couple levels. One, he's feeling better. And this is the one time she's like, no, I'm happy. I don't need anything from you money wise. Right. And so like those two are finally merging. Like she shows up in his life. He gets sick. Mm -hmm. She starts leaving. He's feeling better. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, I mean, it's also just implicit, but like you said, he doesn't need that formulaic kind of setup to these jokes, but the premise of the joke is what he's building for chapters and it's it's just it's so rewarding. I mean, that's that's essentially what's necessary for sarcasm to work is some sort of context or understanding. Exactly. But to do that in the written word, in the context of a story, just requires so much information and just understanding between the writer via the characters and the reader. And it, so it's very impressive. Yeah, it's so much easier when you're listening to maybe like radio or a podcast or watching a movie or TV show, because then the actor who's reading the lines can put some stink on it. Right. You know, like a satisfied customer gladdens the heart kind of really ham it up. But 
a, a writer doesn't necessarily have that. You, and to fill that gap, you need so much context. And, you know, when we meet him, it's dozens of pages back. And now all that gets paid off with one really funny joke. And that's why, that's why that was my deep dive this week is just to highlight, you know, not only just the descripting prowess of Portis, but just how funny he is. No, I love it. It was a great pick. Okay, kids. So I'm, <laughs> I, I picked a passage that we, we talked a little bit about this. It's the first time that Rooster is basically trying to tell Maddie that she is not fit for this type of quest, this journey uh, to hunt down Cheney. And Maddie goes on this just epic run where she is just talking down to Rooster in a way that deserves highlighting. So the passage is this, quote, I said, I have left off crying and giggling as well. Now make up your mind. I don't care anything for all this talk. You told me what your price for the job was, and I have come up with it. Here is the money. I aim to get Tom Cheney, and if you are not game, I will find somebody who is game. All I have heard out of you so far is talk. I know you can drink whiskey, and I've seen you kill a gray rat. All the rest has been talk. They told me you had grit, and that is why I came to you. I am not paying for talk. I can get all the talk I need and more at the Monarch boarding house. Okay, so that's the first section. And there are several things I want to talk about. The tone of this has a certain implied exasperation and frustration to it. And there are several ways that Portis makes that very well known. For one, he he repeats the word talk a million times throughout it. That repetition is important in just like really solidifying, okay, I mean business here. This is like what I'm coming at you with. And like that repetition is super important. But it's an interesting thing too that there's this introductory sentence where it's, I have left off crying and giggling as well. And basically what that tells you is, Maddie is saying straight up, I'm done with the emotional side of this. In that sentence, she's like, this is not about emotion. Crying and giggling is done. Everything else in this paragraph is super matter of fact. Like I said, she's repeating talk a bunch of times and she talks about money. So this is clearly a transactional issue and she's getting frustrated about this. The next thing is like the rhythm or meter of this paragraph is really interesting to me. If you look at the sentence structure of the paragraph, it goes back and forth from being a single, like just a simple sentence to a compound sentence, back and forth each time. That's not a mistake. Like Portis is doing that intentionally. And so when you're reading this, it has this interesting, like just kind of flow and rhythm to it that feels very disjointed, but also like poetic in a way. Like this is the kind of stuff where if you can just take a step or like take a break from like reading through this and taking notes and everything. It's the kind of thing that just like screams out at me that all of this is so intentional. And what we're feeling with like the context building up to a sarcastic joke and everything is like, it's crafted. It's not an accident. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's all so intentional. That's a great note about the simple sentence, compound sentence. I hadn't noticed that. That's a great pickup. Portis is a, you know, he was a newspaper man. He was an editor. He was a bureau chief and he's a novelist. The man knows words in a, that's a super simple way to put it, but he's an expert. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he chose now to kind of make the stand and he's having Maddie say what is super important in a lot of Westerns, right? Which is like the kind of a call to action where she's like, I thought you were about action, but all I've seen is talk and I'm sick of it. Mm -hmm. Do you have grit? I was told you have grit. And she challenges his manhood and in a way that, you know, is all true. It's not like she's like, you know, you're a coward. She's not saying that. She's saying, she's not saying that he's bad. She's saying you're not as good as you've been led up to believe. Yeah. I've been led to believe. 
Yeah. Okay. So then, so the next, the next part of this that I wanted to talk about, because it's a switch in her strategy is after she leaves off at that paragraph, Rooster says, I ought to slap your face. (laughs) Fair. And she comes back with, how do you propose to do it from that hog wallow you were sunk in? I would be ashamed of myself living in this filth. If I smelled as bad as you, I would not live in a city. I would go live on top of Magazine Mountain where I would offend no one but rabbits and salamanders. Okay, so this paragraph is filled with just crazy imagery. There's alliteration with Magazine Mountain, which makes it more pleasing to like your ear as you're reading it yourself. The hog wallow is something called an assonance where it's not a rhyme, but two words that are right next to each other share a similar like vowel sound. And so like, again, more pleasing to the ear. It's just great creative writing. And then there are plenty of examples throughout that passage where Maddie is basically attacking him for being an animal, which is even more funny considering the fact the guy's name is fucking Rooster. His name is Rooster, implication of an animal. She's She references his current state as a hog wallow, which is funny because if LaBeef is the super Texas lawman, then calling Rooster a fat hog, the mascot of the University of Arkansas Razorbacks, he's the true Arkansas hero, right? Yeah. If he's a pig in shit, who stinks but gets the job done that that insult applied to him is also the perfect imagery we need to like cement in who this guy is exactly his 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 dedication to like i bring dudes back the arkansas way is obviously something portis really cares about the guy loved arkansas We've read two books where the main character is from Arkansas. He's from Arkansas. He returned from New York and London to live in Arkansas. It's important that we get that information. Yeah. And again, part of like why this is so clever and well-written is because everything we're saying, like this implication that somehow Rooster is an animal. He's beneath man, right? Maddie never says straight up that he is an animal, but it's just through really great writing and imagery and implication that that comes across to the reader. And that's what makes good writing good writing. When like, you can tell me what you're saying without telling me what you're saying. The yeah, use show of, don't tell. The use of metaphor is like what separates really good literature from like, reading a fucking instruction manual. So I just like that little section to me, I was just like, oh my gosh, Portis, give it to me, daddy. That's great. And, you know, I totally agree on all of it. Just a couple bangers of scenes. Yeah. Okay, Cody, you're rooting for the week. All right. So I I already talked about the comedy, so I'm going to leave that be. I think my rooting of the week is just like, the super American Western media lizard brain I have, where as soon as uh, LaBeef and Rooster came into view the morning they're set out and they're just dressed to the nines, literally ready to kill, I was like, let's fucking go. Mm-hmm. That was my literal rooting of the week. I was like, I'm rooting for these guys to kick some ass. What about you? Yeah. So mine is, it's like almost the same thing. It's very similar. I just, I, I was like eyes an inch away from the from the page when it's finally the morning that Maddie is setting off. Mm-hmm. And the sequence of her crossing the river on her noble steed pony blackie and everything. It's just like, okay, now we are getting to the action of this story. We're setting off. And like you, Cody, total lizard brain everything about my understanding of like pop culture in movies is somehow influenced at some point by like American Western cinema, like Mm -hmm. denying that I think would be a lie. And so, and so like exactly like you're saying, part of me is just like, all right, let's fucking go. I, I know this type of story feel super comfortable 
and I, I'm just like overjoyed to be to be in it. All right, your tootin' for the week. Uh, my tootin' of the week. This comes with every Porta story that you know we've come to learn this. The the characters don't last forever unless they're the main ones. So we don't get any more Stonehill, who I've really come to just like every time. I'm like, okay, we're going back to the storehouse. We're putting Stonehill back in the torture chamber. This is going to be hilarious. I'm going to actually laugh out loud. So now he's we've he's free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's free of Maddie Ross, which is good for him, but sucks for me because I'm going to miss the guy. Yeah, I I agree with that as well. I. It's just part of reading Portis, I guess, man. Like you just have to love characters and be totally cool, I guess, with them uh, just evacuating the story. You know, this isn't necessarily... I have trouble a lot when we do like our, whatever it is, Smeagol, Downer, or uh, Gollum, Downer, Tootin, whatever it is, because most of the time I'm just so in love with whatever we're reading that makes it hard to do. But part of like what I was just struggling with is like, I just want Rooster to be on board with Maddie immediately. And it's a dumb tootin' because like it would make for a worse story if that were Mm -hmm. the case. So I understand that, but like you're reading it and you just like, I have full faith in this kid. And I want Rooster to also have that faith in her immediately. And I think it'll come, but it's just like, it's tough when you're like, Ugh, just you're, you're, get there, you're man. Tootin', your tootin' is being on the hook. Yes. <laughs> you're on the hook for the story. You're getting dragged along. Yeah. It sucks. Cause yeah, you're like, you're, you know, that's how you know the story's good. Mm-hmm. Ultimately is you're like, Oh, like, Oh, I wish I did this. Ooh, what's going to happen? Turn page. But you know, that's what makes it good. Yes. So next time we will be coming at you with the next chapter. Again, Portis doesn't number these chapters, so I believe it's six. Uh, yeah. The next healthy chunk of this book is what we're going to The next be- clean 70 pages. Yeah, <laughs> is what we will be coming at you with next week. Can't wait to do that. Thank you again for listening. Feel free to reach out to us at bibliotakes at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, bibliotakespod. I'd love to hear from you guys, and we will see you next time. Thanks, folks.